Um, <clears throat> I'll just add to the announcements that Kevin made before we start. Um, I gave a series of classes in Santa Barbara, and I don't have all the CDs that go with them, but I brought the list, and if you want to order them, you can find them at the back table. The one that refers to what we're doing today is called Synchronicity and Spirituality. It's a series of eight talks that I gave. And then uh, I did bring the ones called How Relationships Work. That's a set of 12 classes. So that's back there. And um, my new book is also here. It's called Coming Home to Who You Are. <coughs> and this is the one we'll be using today, How to Be an Adult in Faith and Spirituality. So, um, can everybody see this board placed this way? Uh, what? Uh, no, I don't want to be up on top there, but I can move it over somewhat. I'll try to write big. Good, and we'll have time for questions as we go along. Maybe we could lower the heat a little bit. It might be overly warm. So let's begin with um, just the, I would just like to read the first paragraph of the introduction. Before sitting down this morning, which is not this morning, of course, but <laughs> Before sitting down this morning to work on this manuscript, <clears throat> I walked over to the radio to turn off the news. <clears throat> the last words I heard were, a candlelight vigil will be held tonight for the three fallen police officers. I thought to myself, this is an example of folk religion. Without connection to an institution, an institutional church, we use the traditional religious elements of ritual. That is, candles at night, a community vigil, a procession in silence, and ending at standing at attention. Instead of using the word dead, the three dead police officers, the radio announcer used the word fallen, which has a religious, patriotic connotation. So the voice on the radio is a reminder that most of us can't help being religious when we face ultimates such as death especially heroic or tragic death. It's understandable that the elements of religion appear automatically when something happens that creates communal grief or joy. We feel reverently compassionate and we show it by a ritual that helps us move through our experience with a sense of contribution to the community and comfort to ourselves. These are the perennial ways that religion has provided resources 
for us as we grieve. In the example above, no religious group set up the vigil or suggested the candles. It was not a church leader who wrote the news bulletin. The human psyche has its own elemental religion. Indeed, our brain seemed wired to practice religious rituals and to believe in the transcendent. Even when people are not connected to a church, they naturally invent and perform consoling rituals, especially in or after a crisis. And they will refer to this inclination as spiritual rather than religious. Everybody follow? Good. So let's begin with a simple description of what the difference is between religion and spirituality. And basically, there are four elements, one of which we already mentioned, which is ritual. Belief in something beyond ourselves, so that could be God or saints, so forth. Some type of moral code. Rituals. And the fourth element is devotion to some person or reality, some um, personal relationship that you feel to a figure that is transcendent. So when you look at this statue of Buddha, you don't think of Buddha as simply an historical person. You think of him as someone you're in relationship to. And uh, when that personal relationship has a kind of intimacy in it, so that you could even talk to the, to the person behind the statue, then that's devotion. When these four happen within a, an institution, they are called religious. When we do them on our own, they're called spirituality. So if you stop to think of it, if you consider yourself a spiritual person, you probably have some kind of belief in something beyond yourself, whatever it may be. And you probably operate honestly and with integrity in the world. That's your moral code. And you practice some kind of a ritual. You might light a candle or have incense. And you have some feeling, some personal uh, relationship to whatever the figures are that you admire or adore or care about. So when it's individually designed, it's called spirituality. And when it's designed by 
an institution, it's usually called religious. So we just start with that realization that we're always on the same page whether we're uh, describing religion or spirituality. Now, most of us were brought up in religious settings that were somehow repressive of our full emergence as people, especially in the sexual area. Our religion may have insisted on a kind of obedience to authority that no longer works when you're an adult because now you believe that you have your own conscience and you can understand moral issues. You don't have to take your orders from um, some, uh, some person who considers himself uh, to be the authority on morality or belief. And we were taught often that everything was meant literally so that the events that occurred, like in the Christian tradition, uh, events that occurred in the life of Christ are all to be taken literally and refer only to him. But as you uh, mature into adulthood, you realize that instead of looking upon everything as literal, you could see everything as a metaphor for the farther reaches of your own human psyche. Now, one thing religion has done, it has preserved because it's mainly conservative, it conserves, it has preserved certain archetypal meanings that are powerfully active in our human lives, but we don't quite pay attention to them. So religion has kept them um, foremost in our minds. So we have words like resurrection, transfiguration, ascension, revelation, and other elements in our society don't come to us with words like this. In fact, they might, many uh, people might even think, well, there's no such thing as resurrection or transfiguration or ascension so forth, or revelation. These are all made up. But depth psychology, especially the work of Jung, has helped us realize that these do not have to apply to one specific person, like resurrection only applies to Christ rising from the dead, but could tell us something about 
deep potentials in ourselves that have spiritual meaning and implications and that we know ourselves more fully when we step out of the superstition that only that which science approves of is real. But that there's a, a, a bigger reality, a mysterious world that is real and that every once in a while in life you have a little moment that um, shows you that there's more going on than what we found out about ourselves in Psychology 101. <laughs> that there really are moments in which you feel like some type of new life has come into you, a new energy, that something's been resurrected that seemed to have been lost, that we have somehow been transfigured through a revelation, through a revelation from someone or an experience of finding Buddhism or a relationship, that also that we have ascended into a, a higher way of seeing things than the way we usually had of seeing things. So then these religious words start to come back to us and we can re-own them because they're no longer tied to some institutional version, but they have uh, pointed to uh, wonderful depths in ourselves that make us, that show us to be much bigger than ever we thought. And it was always about this. But uh, if we were brought up in religious settings that said, no, this is only for saints and gods. This is not about you. You're supposed to adore this. Then we would have missed out on finding the real value in them. So to become an adult does not, in spirituality, does not mean that you would throw away everything that religion preserved, but you would reconsider it in such a way as to find out how it could be real in your own life. Does this make sense to everybody? No matter what the religious background is. So we begin there, and let me give you um, and now I'm going to the how to be an adult in faith and spirituality, and I have a, a section here on um, how to look over your religious background to see how it could be upgraded into a more adult view. So now I'm on page 23. Um, consider these criteria to see if they match your own ideas of what a healthy religious background would be. 
and you want to ask questions like this. Does it help you face the givens of life rather than exempt you from them or guarantee the intervention of a rescuer God? If that's what it's about, oh, there's going to be a, you're going to be rescued because you're doing all the right things, so you're not going to have to face the things that everybody else faces. That type of approach would not be helping us become more adult. <laughs> it recommends only what is in keeping with healthy development, physically, psychologically, and emotionally. It recognizes our right to happiness rather than you're here to endure suffering. Rather than insisting that we gain merit by enduring pain, especially in relationships. It does not take away even one of your basic human rights, but guarantees the freedom of your intellect. I read this list to my sister and she said, there isn't any religion that's like this. <laughs> But anyway, I'm still trying. Um, it motivates us to act with universal kindness rather than just to the people in your own religious group. Not because of fear, guilt, or superstition, but because of the love that it affirms to be present in all of us. It trusts our ability to explore theology rather than you have to get the correct theological view from the authorities. It does not declare itself to be the one true way or that all truth is in any one book, Bible, or that beliefs should be taken literally, but respects the best modern contributions to adult understanding from religious, philosophical, and scientific sources. It is not prejudiced toward nor militant against others because of their gender, creed, or sexual orientation. It is joyous and comforting without being separatist, not offering us against the world, but providing a holding environment that grants a sense of belonging, no matter how eccentric our viewpoint may be. You still feel that you belong, like you're not a heretic or excommunicated. <clears throat> it comforts, challenges, and continually teaches us how to achieve our full stature as adults. It expands our conscience so that with increased awareness of global suffering and ecological issues, we become engaged and make a contribution to a world of justice, peace, and love. So that is the, that would be what it looks like if our religion had helped us be adults. And if it hasn't helped us in that way, then we need to find it on our own. And that's where we design our own spirituality, which certainly makes a lot of sense. And uh, I am unable to face the givens of life alone which might be how we were taught about what are these givens of life? Uh, let's just say a word about that first. That everything in life will change and end. 
givens like the givens uh, in high school geometry. It means something that you don't have to prove that everybody accepts. So for instance, the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. That would be a given. So it seems like one of the givens of life is that things certainly change and end. That uh, life will not always be fair to us. That things will not always go according to our plans. That suffering will be part of every person's life. And that people are not loyal and loving all the time. So I call these the five things we cannot change. And these are, shall we say, the basic givens of life, of which there are many. A religion that really helps us would show us ways to accept these with what Jung called an unconditional yes, without protest or blame. And by saying that unconditional yes, these givens turn out to be the actual ingredients Of, a, of an adult life that has character and loyalty to reality in it. So how do you become a person who accepts life just as it is? You say yes unconditionally to these givens. And my suspicion is that givens like these are in the origin of religion because religion gives an answer to each of these. I'll, I'll explain what I mean. First of all, it says that in some religious views, like in the Judeo-Christian view, uh, if you recall the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, after Eve ate the forbidden fruit and convinced Adam to eat it also, then uh, they, our first, they, our first parents, were punished by God and uh, evicted from the Garden of Eden. And ever after, all their progeny, like ourselves, would have a life like this where things will change and end, where things won't be fair, things won't go according to your plans, you'll be suffering, and you'll uh, continually butt up against lack of love and lack of loyalty. So these are penalties. That's where they came from. They're penalties for our original disobedience. But as we look at them as adults, instead of saying they're penalties, we say they're ingredients so that we could have character, depth, and compassion. And how do we get to that? By saying yes to them rather than blaming ourselves 
for, or our first parents for them. So religion will say, for instance, we can dull the thud of these givens upon your life if you follow our perspective, because it's true that here things change and end, but there awaits us a heaven in which things don't change and end. It's true that things are unfair, but at the end there will be a judgment and all, not just Christianity, but all religions have this concept of some kind of judgment after death. Um, there'll be a judgment of the, those who are good and those who are bad. The good will go to heaven and the bad will go to hell. So fairness will happen after all. And yes, things don't go according to your plans, but there's a divine plan and that uh, is uh, reliably in place at all times and that suffering is uh, part of life and if you endure it and offer up your sufferings uh, that you'll gain some type of merit. And that people are not loyal and loving all the time but God is love and is loyal all the time. So sometimes the religious response will have as its purpose to um, to uh, take the givens that we are meant to face as our challenges in life and uh, turn them in such a way that um, we get some comfort in believing that uh, these are just temporary in this temporary world and what really matters is what comes next. And that, of course, would be the very opposite of, um, of our full commitment to be here now. Everybody follow? So I'm unable to face the givens of life alone. I'm on page 24. I'm unable to face the givens of life alone if I've been taught that. This changes as I become more adult. I face the givens of my life and ask for support from those I trust. And I also feel myself accompanied at times by a guiding force that is ever present to assist me in, in saying yes, not assist me in abrogating the givens. I can trust my feelings, my sexuality, my body, and my impulses. I cannot trust, this is a, what some of us were taught, I cannot trust my feelings, sexuality, body, or impulses. They will lead me astray as they led Adam and Eve astray. This changes too. I appreciate how my impulses free up my creativity while I continue to set limits on them when they hurt me or others or when they deter me from my life purpose. See how much healthier that sounds? Uh, take this one. It is dangerous to trust my inner voice rather than listen to the pronouncements of authority. That changes to, I trust my inner voice and remain open to the suggestions of others, especially those with knowledge and experience beyond my own. So I'm open to others, but 
not obedient. And finally, the, the given about suffering as part of life. My purpose in life is to endure pain, not to be happy. Some of us were taught that, not only from religion, but from our families. This becomes, my life purpose is to be as happy as possible and to tolerate the suffering that is natural to me as a human being while doing all I can to alleviate suffering in myself and others. So we can take these uh, original uh, injunctions that were placed upon us and we can uh, reframe them in ways that really uh, have a more adult flavor. Does this make sense to everybody? Okay, so let's uh, have a couple of questions so that we can be sure that we're on the right track. We have somebody with a microphone. Okay, uh, Natalie, the woman straight behind you. Hi, I want... Yes. I wanted to ask you about uh, the notion of ethics. Yes. And I imagine that that was sort of... Um, a new way of sort of spirituality in a Christian world, sort of right after the Enlightenment. And what's your question specifically? Well, uh, what, what, is, what is the role of ethics, you know, in spirituality and religion, I guess, is the oh, question. Oh, okay. So, uh, thank you. She's reminding us of one of the four elements. And what we want to be careful about when it comes to evolving our moral sense is that it's not the same as repression of our creative side. So we want to be careful when we look at, well, what are my moral values? For instance, one of your moral values might be to be totally honest in how you use money that you will always be honest in your monetary dealings. Well, that's, that's not a repressive um, building of your conscience. That seems like it does make sense. But if one of the things you've been taught is um, you cannot uh, express your sexual impulses except in ways that are conventionally acceptable, then it becomes repressive. So then you start to design your own ideas about that by saying, well, I can do um, whatever I want to do as long as I act responsibly and don't hurt others and don't break the commitments and ground rules of my relationship if I'm in one. See, that will give you a lot more latitude than you can only have sex once you're married. And the purpose of sex is procreation. So that would be a very narrow view. So we want to free ourselves from that approach. Okay, somebody else had uh, right here, Natalie? Uh, 
uh, as you were speaking, I think you were actually on the second page, and this word yeah. just popped into my mind and just felt very clarifying. And the, the word, uh, a word just popped into my mind and felt very clarifying. Yeah. And I'd just like you to clue off of that. The word yeah. was exclusivity. Yes, that uh, you feel like you're an outsider if you don't follow the standards. Or, you know, our group has the truth. Right. And we're a little bit better, at least a little bit better than everybody else. Yes. Even if they have a lot of truth, we have a little bit more. We want to be it can very take careful a lot of about forms. that. Right. Yeah. So the approach there is... Um, that there's a, uh, a kind of, um, some type of container of truth and that once you are lucky enough to find it, your purpose in life is simply to preserve it. And this, of course, is the opposite of the adult style of evolutionary orientation. So instead of saying, I found out the truth and now my purpose is to preserve it, I say, the truth is continually evolving. It can't be placed in a box and be settled once and for all. So how could it be that one group contains the full truth and that others do not? Because there is no full, final truth like that. Truth, like everything, continually evolves, which does not mean change. It means two things. It deepens. in how we appreciate it. I'll give an example. And it becomes more relevant to what's happening to us here and now. So for instance, if you read Hamlet in, as a senior in high school, uh, you maybe thought, well, the whole thing is about somebody who has trouble making a decision. Well, that is an element of it. He's having trouble making a decision about whether he should follow his father's advice and kill his uncle who murdered his father. But he's confused about whether or not he should do this. So if that is all you get from the play, then you have uh, basically a superficial appreciation of it. But when you see the play again at age 35, you realize, oh, it has a lot, there's a lot more to this. This also has to do with um, who we are in the world, how we relate to our family, our father, um, how we uh, decide ways to stretch ourselves, how we look at things in, um, in ethical ways, how we make our own decisions, et cetera, et cetera. And so the whole thing starts to deepen because you have evolved 
as a person, and so has the appreciation of what Hamlet's really about. Everybody follow what I mean? So it's, uh, and, and now it's become relevant to you because as you're sitting there watching it at age 35, you hear Hamlet say something and you realize, oh, this is true of me. This is happening to me right now, actually. The same thing that he just said. When he said, should I take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them? Yeah, that's what I'm facing also. Am I supposed to try to change what's happening or do I just go along with it? Now you're seeing it in a deeper way. This truth was always in it, but um, you have evolved into appreciating it in a bigger way. And the original truth that was meant by Shakespeare has also evolved. Not only do you appreciate it in a new way, but the, but the actual uh, words that he wrote have evolved into a bigger meaning than even he himself could foresee. So any approach that says, no, it's all contained and all we have to do is preserve it, is not in our best interest as adults. Okay, right here, Natalie. Um, as you were speaking about religion and you know, institutions, yeah. I was thinking that, you know, basically in some way all of, you know, the, my family, my family of origin was its own institution, right? That I, as I'm mm. becoming an adult, and, yes. you know, there was authority, we were, you know. Yes, and, absolutely. Um, and what I'm thinking as you're speaking is what if I was actually raised by the kind of adult you're talking about? What if, you know, what would becoming an adult you mean there look is one? like? <laughs> Well, I mean, because we wouldn't, you know, what if you were raised in a family? What if we're evolving to a place that when we're talking about parenting, that's what we're trying to teach, change the paradigm, right? Of, yeah. And if you were raised by, you know, the, by not by somebody who said, this is the truth, or this is, you know, obey my law, or all the other ways that probably the majority of us were parented, mm -hmm. you know, would your book be relevant? <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, what would becoming an adult? No, it would be unnecessary because <laughs> that would be a, a, an ideal way. Uh, let me say one more thing about that because um, she's bringing up a very important point that most of what I'm saying about religion is also true of family and what we learn from them. Now, here's an interesting question to ask yourself. So here you are uh, in your family. Um, are there more of these around? So here you are, and you come into the world with certain talents and gifts and wonderful um, potentials. Now you have to ask yourself, were your parents taking that you and trying to make it into what they believed you should be? That's one question. That's one possibility. 
So here's the little you, and they're looking at you, and they're saying, how do we make her into what she should be? That's one approach. The other approach is they're looking at you, and they're expectantly awaiting what you might be. And they're all excited. They're looking at you and saying, gee, I wonder what wonderful talents and gifts she has and what special potentials she came in with. And, oh, we're just uh, looking forward to seeing them emerge. See how different that would be? And that, thank you. And that would be the same with religion. Did they, does, did your religion look at you and say, this is what you should be, you should follow these commandments and precepts? Or did it look at you and expectantly trusting and awaiting the wonderful impulses that you would bring to the human table? So a lot of what we're saying is, um, fits with the family institution, not just the religious one. Okay, let's take one more question and then we'll overhear Jody in the first row and we'll come back to the other ones. Um, since we had talked about ethics and morality, I had a question about religion and entitlement. In the media, I've seen several people like Herman Cain say, well, I'm, <coughs> at, I'm at peace with my God. Now this to me seems like you get a hall pass to jump over any unethical behavior by saying, well, I'm at peace with my God, and yes. it's, okay, it's all good. Mm -hmm. I have a real problem with that. Could you comment yes, on that? that's a very good point. <laughs> that sometimes uh, religion seems to give you a special entitlement because you're lucky enough to be in the one true church, so, so you get to be above everybody else. And when you do things, we have a way of handling it in-house so you don't have to... <laughs> Uh, <laughs> be out there in the world with uh, your worst, with your slip showing. I was just wondering if people still wear slips. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, Jody's bringing up an important point, which is this entitlement, and that leads us to our next topic, because. Now we want to go more into the spirituality dimension of it all, move beyond the religious question. So entitlement refers to what happens when our ego becomes inflated. So when the you uh, thinks it's bigger than it really is, how big is it? It's uh, as big as its connection to everybody else in the world. That's how big we are. We're big in accord with our connectedness. Caring connection being the definition of love. We're not big in the, not meant to be big in the sense of we're in control of others. We're entitled to special treatment. We're always right. We're above other people. 
because we have something going for us that they don't. So that's what's meant by ego inflation. This is a, a phrase from Jung. Ego is simply the Latin word for I. So this I can at times be healthy. How is the I healthy? It's healthy when it does what it does all the things and only the things that fulfill your goals in life. If your goal in life is to become a uh, psychologist, then you need to put enough money aside to sp for your schooling. You need to take the test and prepare for the test to be able to get in the school. Once you're in the school, you need to do your studies in such a way as to get a, a, a good grade that will ready you to take the test to get your license. And then you have fulfilled your goal. If instead of doing all, that would be the healthy ego at work. If instead of doing all those things, you um, turn to drugs so that uh, you couldn't really concentrate on your studies. Instead of making enough, saving up enough money, you wasted your money by buying things that you don't really need. You didn't really prepare for your tests, etc. Now your healthy ego it has, has been uh, canceled and instead you're operating from a dysfunctional ego the one that's not leading you to your goal. So sometimes the ego is healthy, sometimes it's dysfunctional. And one of its specific ways of being dysfunctional is when it becomes inflated and arrogant. And this is why spirituality includes a letting go of ego. What do they really mean by letting go of ego? Obviously, we're not letting go of our healthy ego. What we're letting go of is the ego that has become inflated, arrogant, in needing to be in control, believing itself entitled, believing it is always right so can't apologize, believing it's above other people. All the characteristics of a narcissistic style the person who's like this is completely disabled from having a healthy intimate relationship and yet he will find a wife every time <laughs> how do we explain this you'll have no trouble finding one woman after another, because he's usually charming. Can manipulate. Kind of find any kind of a woman. Not, uh, hold it one sec. But let me just finish on this. So the ego that becomes inflated and that is narcissistic rather than 
working on connection, working on how do I become more connected to others in healthy, caring ways. That's the ego that we would want to let go of. So in all the accents in Buddhism on letting go of ego, this is the first step in the spiritual life. Has to be number one. First, that ego has to be deflated, cut down to size, so that it takes its place as a healthy ego in the midst of everybody else. And it makes his, this person then makes his, notices that when he lets go of control, so let's just go, or uh, let's just follow each of the characteristics of the inflated ego. When I let go of control, I become someone who allows others to be who and what they are. When I let go of my arrogance, I become humble enough to see my place in the world. When I let go of being above other people, I notice that I become equal to others. When I let go of entitlement, I find myself as one who stands up for his rights, but does not retaliate if he can't secure them. When I let go of the belief that I'm always right, I become open to what others bring to the table. So we take humility, allowing freedom, being equal, standing up for rights but not retaliating, and becoming open, and that is what we would call a spiritual person. How did he get to be called a spiritual person? By one by one disabling and transforming the characteristics of that narcissistic ego. Narcissistic, self-absorbed. Self-absorbed doesn't really work in a world like ours that's based entirely on connection. Everything is linked up to everything else. And so if you're one who believes I'm above all that, then uh, you've missed the point. What does spirituality do? It brings you back to the real connection that you're meant to have. And the interesting thing about this is that spirituality is what gives you the motivation to do this. You would not find much motivation to do this in Psychology 101, which simply describes how everything works. But what, what spirituality does is it says, it's important to let go of ego understood as the inflated arrogant ego. It's important to let go of ego 
because this will lead you to an enlightened way of living. What is an enlightened way of living? One that has become free of fear and craving, as in the Four Noble Truths of Buddhism, that, that, there, is, uh, that there is dissatisfaction and that uh, it does lead to suffering but that this suffering is often based on attachment. So as we let go of our attachments, we free ourselves and become enlightened. So it's, it's, it has as its motivation this move toward a lighter way of being in the world, a way that brings more light into the world. And to hook this up to religion, so you think back to uh, God said, let there be light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Now you take those two statements and you piece them back into your spirituality. Oh, when he said, let there be light, I don't have to think of that as some guy up in the sky with a beard made light. Instead of thinking of it that way, oh, let there be light is actually written in my own soul. And I let there be light when I lighten up from that constricted ego and instead go into this freedom of this uh, humble connection to the world around me. And when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, it isn't just that he's the light of the world. He was telling me my own identity. I can be one who brings light into the world. How do I do this? By letting go of fear and craving and acting with loving kindness. Another Buddhist practice. So that's how you make the connection. This is one example of making the connection between something from words from your religious background, bring them up into the, the present, and include them in your appreciation of what it means to be spiritual. And spiritual, by the way, is not the opposite of material. Spiritual is simply a way of talking about that which helps us move beyond that which is transcendent. This word in Latin means to climb over. Something that transcends the usual or ordinary way of living. I found a new way of living. It's not this way. It's not the way of the um, inflated ego. It's the way of humility, equality, stand up for your rights, be open, allow others to be who they are. And all of that is a way of becoming a more uh, loving person. And the path to it is freeing myself from the usual fears and cravings that go with that inflated ego. I have become more spiritually aware when I have moved in this direction, motivated 
by what I found in spiritual practice or spiritual teachings motivated only by the wish for enlightenment, what's called bodhicitta, the wish to be enlightened. The new orientation of my life so that instead of it being geared toward how can I make all the, po all the money I can possibly make, how can I have all the control I can possibly have, how can I be above other people? I have moved over into a new orientation. Now it's all about how can I be enlightened? How can I let go of the fears and cravings that have been my companions all these years so that instead my only purpose is a life of loving kindness? That would be the move toward spirituality. If religion helps you get there, it's valuable. If it doesn't, it's useless. Okay, so let's take a short break and then we're going to come back for all the other questions. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.